If you want to spend less time going to the grocery store, then you need to check out ButcherBox. It's a super convenient way to find high-quality meat and seafood that you can trust. ButcherBox only sells 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, pork-raised, crate-free, and wild-caught seafood. And you know what all that means. No antibiotics or added hormones, so you get peace of mind that you're eating healthy food. On top of all that, ButcherBox makes shopping simpler because it gets delivered right to your doorstep. Shipping is always free, and you can customize your meal plan so you're only getting exactly what you want. We've tried everything from pork chops to tenderloins at our house, and they're always a huge hit. ButcherBox prices are as good or better than what you can find at the store, plus they have exclusive member deals, as well as a ton of recipes, cooking tips, and other kitchen hacks to choose from. So sign up at ButcherBox.com LISC and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer, plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. So sign up today at ButcherBox.com slash LISK, L-I-S-K, and use code LISK to choose your free-for-a-year offer, plus $20 off your first order. Mopac Audio. Thanks for joining us on this episode of LISK, Long Island Serial Killer, and part two of our conversation with Dr. Shiloh and Dr. Scott from the LA Not So Confidential podcast. We discussed what it would look like for the alleged killer Rex Hewerman in jail in terms of his own frame of mind, along with interacting with the general population. We also hit on a number of topics that may be triggering for some. So just a quick warning that this episode contains references to sexual violence and sex crimes against children. With that said, we're so grateful to Dr. Shiloh and Dr. Scott for explaining in layman's terms a ton of psychological aspects that will no doubt be considered in the Rex Hewerman case. And now, here's the episode. You know, if there's someone like Rex, you know, allegedly, whoever, you know, we think it was Rex, but whoever, whoever did these crimes, what does incarceration, you know, look like for that person who has the sadism? who has, you know, maybe even that sexual sadism part, you know, that they've got the whole gambit of mess and now they're locked away. What does that do to someone? I think there's a real misnomer about um, criminals at that level having street cred um, or having credibility within an incarceration setting. It doesn't really, in my experience, it doesn't really work that way. I mean, there are strong, strong organized crime and gang activities within prisons throughout the U.S. That's just an absolute fact. But their hierarchy and their um, version of respect for their peers uh, is, is not based on how many crimes that person comes in with. In fact, it's actually the opposite. And there is, you know, there is still some uh, modicum of respect among criminals as far as a hierarchy. And at the bottom, the very, very bottom of that hierarchy is um, child sex offenders. You know, that is like you are, you, you really, you're, you better watch your back because it's, it's very dangerous. And in most prison systems, they will keep you on a special needs yard, an SNY yard, um, where you will be relatively safer with other people who are protected classes, because that can be a cred to take someone out like that. So literally only a half a step above that is someone who is a serial rapist or a serial killer of women. You know, so th those are the bottom of the barrel and they're, they're not going to have a good experience in prison at all. And in fact, they'll most likely 
not only be on a special needs yard, but for at least the first few years of their tenure in whatever like reception prison they're in or long-term prison, they're going to be in isolation or in a very, very small group of peers. And when someone like that gets put away, especially if they're a big person and how dangerous are they to the population, to the law enforcement? You worry about like, what could that turn into with someone being that far off the charts potentially? So let me just make sure I understand you. So you're saying if a, like a large framed, powerfully built person physically, yeah, you know, are, are they a danger to others? Yeah. And you know, we, if they're probably a sadistic serial killer. Yeah. What, what does that look like in, in the prison system? And how do the, how do you deal with someone like that? I mean, I, we all think Hannibal Lecter, but we know that's not real, but I'm just thinking about it. The alleged killer, what's, what's life like for him now? Well, remember you're moving from the, the free world versus the incarcerated world is, is so radically different. And the, the, world of incarceration, especially in state prisons, is very, very contained. Yes, you have some yard privileges or you might have you might have other privileges that you can earn, but your life is very much contained and very much watched. I mean, prisons are set up so that I mean, and I'm not minimizing that there are criminal activities that are going on in prisons. There's drug use, there's grift, there's people running gangs from phone calls. I mean, that just happens. Sexual assaults. Sexual assaults, right. But within the prison system itself, if someone coming in, first of all, the first thing that happens, you could be six foot five and built like a brick house. The first thing that's going to happen is the shot caller or one of his representatives is going to come up to you and they're going to say, what are your papers? And your papers, like they expect you to pull out of your pocket your criminal papers, your C file, the copy that you have on you so that they can see. And the minute, if you don't give that, and you're in trouble if you don't share that information. You, you It's like, you know, and usually the, the child um, offenders will be the ones that really, like they don't want to share that at all. But um, so there's already an assumption that if you're wary or evasive at all about sharing what your criminal charges are, all eyes are on you. And I'm, I'm, we're talking about several hundred eyes immediately. And that's, that's not even custody. That's just your peers. Everybody knows everything from the minute you walk on that yard. So the, the opportunity for perpetrating on another individual, especially in the first few years is actually very low because, um, it's just a very, very highly watched system. And that is one of the things about the way our, um, prison even our buildings are set up as they're set up almost in this sort of God, what's the term they used to use? Like it's all pod. set up so that, um, you, that custody has pretty much a clear visual look. Like a fishbowl or something. Where yeah. It's, it's yeah. a fishbowl. Yeah. I, yeah. I'd like to speak to that too, just in the sense of like, if you're sort of asking, okay, like what does he do with this sexual compulsion that he's been able to manifest out in the community and then like what does that look like inside and i think scott said beautifully like this is a very contained environment he doesn't have the wherewithal the freedom to do what he was doing before certainly and when we talk about sexual sadism especially you know a very specific paraphilia that anyone in his position would have shaped over a number of years that is very fantasy driven 
So this is this has been progressive. This is um, likely started with how we see with many sex murders or lust murders, um, depending on which researcher you know terminology you want to use, where this has been cr- progressive over time and the fantasy has reshaped, probably starting with minor sexual assaults on up to more violent rapes and then eventually ending in murder, um, but also all the context and nuance that he's been able to implement into his crimes. So there isn't like going to be a replacement for that in prison. It's just going to be cut off, really. I mean, and and probably I think the most obvious here is the lack of any female victims for him. For sure. Um, so yeah, that that will be not available for him to be able to act out, nor would he probably want to, because again, just the opportunity is not there. And there's just too many fail safes for, you know, committing sexual offenses of that type of nature that, that his fantasy was probably built around. And then, you know, as the district attorney builds this case, um, how will they access and, and utilize people like you guys, you know, with your skill sets, to help paint a picture of what he's done potentially, allegedly, and what, um, you know, what that means for incarceration, what that means for, um, you know, his sentence. Let me just give you an example. Um, the first thing that's going to happen in any, uh, just for people that don't know the process is that when you're arrested, um, for almost any crime, the, f- the first step is that you're taken to the lo- local police station in the area where you were picked up, Mo- generally, like 90% of the time, or the precinct. Sometimes, you know, we don't call them precincts out here. We call them divisions. Um, but then after a relatively short amount of time that could be up to three days, you would go for a hearing at the county court seat for an arraignment. And then after that, you're transported to the county jail. And basically, once you go through the county jail doors, there's a whole series of evaluations that happen. And even in high profile incidents like this, um, one of the things that people forget is that medical always trumps um, mental. So the first thing they're going to do is they're going to do a thorough, thorough, thorough medical evaluation. They're going to make sure that like if this person is diabetic and needs their medication on this schedule, they're going to do this. They're going to do that. They're going to keep everything. And I'm, I'm talking also in best case scenarios because I know we do hear horror stories about none of this happening in smaller divisions around the country. But I'm just talking about like a large metropolitan area like, like Southern California has. And then there is going to be a screening um, for basic mental health issues. And we're not going to be doing like a full on investigation right now, but we're just going to be doing, um, a mood disorder index and we're going to be assessing for most importantly, and this is really at this level, this is really the most important part of the psych eval is if the individual is suicidal and not even, not necessarily if they verbally, assert or confirm that they are suicidal, but you're looking at all the other factors because what's the big factor here? This individual has been fingered basically for a number of enormous crimes. So they're not going to take any chances. This person's likely going to be in isolated housing, not with anybody else on 24 hour watch. 
and they would be given what we call safety clothing and safety products. So you'd have a, like a, a gown that's unterrible and a, a, a mattress that is not really a mattress, but it's unterrible and there's nothing that they can do with it to be able to hurt themselves. So that's just in order to keep them safe from themselves and from others in order to get to the next level of hearing where they would be either assigned to a public defender or to, if they have enough money and means, they're going to have their own um, private attorney. So uh, a smart attorney, the first thing that they're going to do is order a full psych evaluation. Now, the problem or the danger in doing that is that once you feel like it's necessary to order a psychological evaluation or a psychiatric evaluation for your client, the results of that test then become part of the criminal proceedings. So it can just as easily be used against you as it would be as a defense. You know, in, in the advocacy work that I do is, you know, maybe someone engaged in some really bad vandalism or they... Um, uh, were under the influence, but they also have severe chronic mental illness and they got behind the wheel of a car and got on the freeway. So we want to come forward with these mental health history items to go, you know, judge, this is what's going on for this person. This was a triggered event. They weren't on their medication. They weren't in their board and care where they were being taken care of and blah, blah, blah. Hopefully we can redirect. But in a case like this, that's very high profile with a number of victims you know, it's going to be a, that's going to be a really risky tactic for defense to use that. And it's not usually um, the prosecution that will order it either. Like what we'll do down the line, I, in my experience, down the line is for these high, um, high profile cases is a psych profile is used as a last ditch effort for defense if you're going to try and go for not guilty by reason of insanity, which is very rare. Like when Shiloh and I have talked about this on several of our episodes, it's like, it's so rare that anyone actually um, gets off from NGRI anymore. It just doesn't really happen. That's a good point because, you know, you think of someone who allegedly has these behaviors and if everything's true, you're like, that person's crazy. But um, I'm like, anyone who takes a life, they're crazy. Clearly not. Well, you're but... a very reasonable person and you it sounds yes. like you have all your synapses are crackling appropriately, right? Well, so... enough of them, I guess. <laughs> I, I don't want to I don't want to get cocky here. No, but but will you talk about that? Because um, that is fascinating. You know, like, how does that work? Well, so you use the term crazy. There's also the term insanity, which is a legal definition, right? It's not even a medical or psychiatric term. And when you look at the definition, how it should be used in court, so specifically in New York, it's based on the defendant's mental state during the commission of the crime. So we have just a very small snapshot that we have to look at, right? And when you look at that, that could be incredibly hard to prove just because a, a psychologist or psychiatrist is evaluating the person to prep for trial. It doesn't mean that is the same individual snapshot of how they were when they committed the crime. So what the insanity defense does is it relieves a defendant of criminal responsibility if, generally speaking, due to a mental disease or defect, 
the defendant lacked the capacity to know or understand the meaning and the severity of their own acts and also lacked the ability to know or understand that the acts were improper. So this is what they call an affirmative defense to criminal charges in the state of New York that that means basically the defendant must prove it's the burden of proof is on them the insanity defense by a preponderance of the evidence. So it's interesting because it kind of now puts a burden on them. Um, like Scott said, it, it's a total long shot. Under the right circumstances, it can work, but really less than 1% of criminal population, or I'm sorry, less than 1% of criminal cases use it. Most are unsuccessful, and actually they're generally used in nonviolent cases. So it it's, it's that sort of Hail Mary, um, if they really feel like they don't have anything else, which which could totally happen in this case. We're um, hypothesizing about this per- current case, but someone could be using like, oh, I want to get out of it and I put on a really good act and I was able to convince the judge that I was insane at the time. If you'd gone to prison, you might have been out in five years. Now you're going to be in a psychiatric ward for 20 so Scott, were, are you talking about competency to stand trial, though, or not guilty by no, reason? No, that was different. Like, because... I mean, for it was only like you were saying for the commission of a crime. But again, those are yeah, very yeah. rare. One of the biggest cases of that is um, John Ronson in his podcasts and his books talks about um, a psychopath that's being held in Britain long term has been like he's he has not been released, and and <laughs> it's very interesting because Ronson's. It's infuriating, in fact, because he's like, I don't understand why he's here. He's so reasonable. He doesn't understand why he's there. Like, well, you're not a professional and you're not looking at the big picture about how this person is able to present to you in this way. But if they were in an uncontained environment outside of a hospital, they'd be very dangerous to the community. But uh, Dr. Shiloh brought up a really good point also is that we have also incompetent to stand trial. And that might be someone who is so chronically mentally ill. It's not about... Um, being insane at the time that the crime was committed, but someone who really does not understand that they did something wrong and they don't, they are not able to understand the process of the trial. So here in the state of California, many times um, with someone who's chronically and severely mentally ill that commits some kind of crime, the defense will declare a doubt So a doubt to their competency, which means they then go back to the jail or a state psychiatric institution for what we call restitution of competency so that they're able to understand the process of the trial. And if I can just button up the insanity defense, um, it's not just about proving that this person has a certain diagnosis, but the degree of disordered thinking and perhaps hallucination by the defendant must be so severe at the time of the crime that it would be convincing to even a skeptical person that the defendant had a very significant detachment from reality during the commission of the crime. So anyone can have a diagnosis. That doesn't mean that they were insane at the time they did it. And I totally, I mean, I understand it to the degree of, you know, like a psychopath can be considered sane, but, you know, it's those people who are so mentally diminished at the time where they commit a crime, they don't try to cover it up. They don't know they did a crime, you know, and you yeah. see like, oh, yeah, they don't even. But, you know, you see someone who's killing and covering and doing you're like, well, they know what they're doing. I don't know why they're doing it. And um, you almost don't think it's well, obviously, they shouldn't be out in public, but you're like, clearly they're messed up. 
Yeah, you know, we have a number of cases in Southern California with our chronically and severely mentally ill. Um, and I'm talking about people that are on the, the psychotic spectrum that for one reason or the, the one that is less harmful is turning on water. Like that'll they'll be in an apartment and they will turn on water for whatever line of thinking is going on in their heads. They'll flood the entire apartment and then destroy their apartment, destroy the apartments underneath. Um, but water damage is water damage and relatively like, you know, it can be fixed. There are others that for various reasons, like I'm going to set a fire in my apartment or I'm going to set a fire in my house. And to them, it makes sense. You know, I've talked with people after they've been stabilized on medication and like, yeah, I thought that I had to burn all the letters that my father ever wrote me because he was still abusing me from the grave by me having these letters. Now, the person was so out of it at the time, they didn't, weren't even burning letters. They were just burning garbage, right? But to them at the moment, at that time, it made sense. But even though it made sense to them, it was endangering the community, endangering themselves because they were setting a building on fire. So it's yeah. it's all, I mean, I'm so sorry to get so in the weeds about no, it's this, good. but it's endlessly fascinating about how much and in what way is a person impaired and how does that impact their functioning in society? If uh, a, if this uh, sexual sadist only ever acts out in his mind, if it's only the way that he gets off or she gets off through, you know, self-pleasure, masturbation, whatever, then, you know, it's never going to express in public, right? But it's when, you know, you get to that point where it's leaking over into real life and you're starting to perpetrate on other individuals and like, okay, that's, that's where it's the problem. In a non-consensual way, because there can be sexual sadists that engage in very consensual, you know, BDSM um, activities and lifestyle right. that is very healthy. You know, that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere. Online, in-store, on social media, and beyond. Shopify is your POS command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that unites your in-person and online sales into one seamless process. Easily track every sale across your business and know exactly what's in stock. Shopify helps you drive traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. You can take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify POS Go mobile device. Easy peasy. And if there's ever a question, Shopify's award-winning support is there to answer your questions. So sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash lisk, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash lisk to take your retail business to the next level today. One last time, go to shopify.com slash lisk. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.
does it always progress though? If you have this sadism and if you have, you know, psychopathy, are you able to keep it under wraps like that? Or does it, cause you know, the high has gone after a while, right? If you're, if it's in your mind or online, let's say, do they never act on it? Which I hope they don't, but it's, it's one, one of those things, like how do they keep chasing that, that next hit? That's the million dollar question. And um, this was something that Scott and I really um, had to consider, especially when we were working with offenders who offended against children, right? Because obviously that is completely off limits, even if they are hardwired and have been diagnosed with pedophilic disorder, you just, you're not allowed to act out on that, right? Similar in the situation that we're talking about. So in psychology and and therapy services with other types of harmful behaviors, we have this concept of harm reduction, right? So if, how can we get this person to perhaps engage in getting a need fulfilled, but make sure they're not harming themselves or somebody else? And this was a constant source of controversial discussion in the industry, um, research, and- Still is still is, wasn't ever clear cut to where some researchers would say, well, do we allow them to, and like for your audience, forgive me, because this is just where our, our trade craft has gone, but do we allow pedophilic disordered people to act out sexually with sex dolls that have characteristics of children, right? Is that going to keep them from acting out against a real child? So there was some that would argue that, yes, this would be like a contained way of sort of self-harm, but there's another batch of researchers that would say, no, this only fuels the desire for the fantasy to sort of change and morph and evolve over time to where that just doesn't do it for them anymore. And they need to um, act out against a child eventually. There is no definitive research about that. I think... um, The research in the area of serial killers has definitely looked at histories of folks who have evolved, like we talked about before, from sexual assaults, um, minor sexual assaults up to major sexual assaults, a lot of violence, and then eventually killing to where there does seem to be this progression to their sexual fantasies. But I would say that the dangerous cocktail there is when you have the traits of psychopathy paired with sexual sadism, that's going to be especially dangerous because with sexual sadism, which is essentially a a paraphilia, again, it's something that is, um, I'm not going to necessarily use the term hardwired because it's not for everyone. They can shape sexual interests that didn't exist before, but generally it is going to be something that's very, very deeply rooted in their personality. And when you link a personality trait and a behavior to sexual behavior, it's very, very powerful. Just your face was like, yeah, that's a bad mix. But it really is. Yeah. Imagine. I mean, and I, plus yeah. I just also, I love working with Dr. Shiloh. Like she just, the way she describes it is so, you know, spot on and, and descriptive and, mm-hmm. and in the way that listeners can understand. And it, it made me think of one of the clients I had when we did our internship and, you know, we worked closely with federal agents. I mean, for those of your listeners that don't know, this is like, there's a, There's like a benchmark that gets hit if you are online surfing and downloading illegal child sex endangerment images or videos. And it's 
I mean, I'm not going to give the number of what it is because I don't want people to go, oh, great, I can get up to this number or whatever. Um, not that your listeners would do that, but there's a very clear number. And like the minute it goes over that number, the feds are on you and they are monitoring all this in ways that most people have no idea that that these kind of things are being monitored. And it's legal. They're doing it through legal means. But, you know, there is in human sexuality this idea of uh, immersion and satiation. So there's a point at which if like if you have limited interpersonal interactions and a healthy sex life outside of your computer relationship, you can um, kung fu grip your genitals <laughs> through an entire series of images that then will no longer satiate you. So you up the game incrementally and you and it goes up and up and you seek more. Um, more stimulating, more challenging things. And I'm, so I just want to piggyback that on top of what Dr. Shiley was saying about um, forming or kind of uh, through a crucible shaping your own behaviors and your own stimulation response. And it can happen of like, it's just not enough. So you go to regular, um, you know, Pornhub then turns into what was the site? Barely Legal. And then barely legal, which I don't even know if that still exists anymore, but it was for a while. So then barely, barely legal turns into, well, I want to go on the dark web and I want to find the real stuff. And then that leads to more and more. And I remember one guy and he gave me this story about like how he started and how it progressed. And I didn't believe him at all until one of his fed supervisors was like, well, no, he has a point because we have his whole browsing history, you know, over a series of years. And we saw him absolutely descend into this, you know, in, into the dark parts of the web and really, you know, cultivate uh, a very, very different um, and very warped sense of sexuality. And he kind of formed that, that crucible after he just visited that and, and chased that down, I guess. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there, I mean, I've also talked to people that have, you know, have like shared that they unfortunately saw one image accidentally and they were so like, it's, it's very interesting to talk to um, a, male, a male who relates a story like this. It's happened to me three times where they talk about how traumatized they were by seeing an image of child sex. Like it was one of them said he was so revolted that like he couldn't get out of bed for a week. You know, he threw up. He couldn't eat. It's like, you know, I, I had no idea what I was clicking on. And this is somebody that's not not a sex offender, has never been adjudicated for it. So most of us would have that response of like, this is really bad. We should, you know, this is, shouldn't be done. We shouldn't be looking at it. So, you know, I enjoyed working with that client. I enjoyed sort of the work that we did and the information I got from his supervisor, but it always made me wonder like, okay, was there that incremental satiation or was there also some wiring underneath there that allowed that to happen? Uh, so I don't, and I'll never have the answer to that, but maybe as we continue to do the research, we'll have that in years to come. Well, and you know, these disorders, from what I understand, like with bipolar, there's medication and there's help and, you know, things can be balanced, right? With disorders, there's not really fixing them, correct? Well, look, we, we don't, we've, we've changed our classification of personality disorders in the last iteration of the DSM. So we don't, we used to do them on this um, axis you know, dividing into these five categories, and we don't do that anymore. But we do look at personality disorders 
as this set of behaviors and the ability of people to interact with the world around them and maintain internal stability, plus whether the internal stability is a sense of connectedness and um, well-being and ability to follow through with activities of daily living and have what we have like a, a functional, fruitful, fulfilling life. And we used to always think that personality disorder, especially what we used to be called cluster B, like antisocial, narcissistic, borderline, that they all came from trauma. And unfortunately, the psychological community really screwed themselves up by, by just staying on that model for so long that it's always got to be trauma. It's always got to be trauma. And what we found out now is that it, there is almost always a marker in the brain. It's a brain structure that makes you more likely to have um, one of these disorders if these things are set in motion. But, you know, the flavor of the month several years ago was borderline personality disorder. And, you know, it, everybody was talking about trauma, 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 trauma. And what the research is showing now over and over again is these clinicians that use the the sort of the standard of treatment, which is called dialectical behavior, behavior therapy for people with borderline personality disorder would find out they would do individual therapy and they would get the list of all this trauma of what happened to this individual who has this disorder. And then they would have family members come in for the family sessions and they would see a wildly different presentation of family members than what was presented by the client. Like wildly, I don't mean subtly, I don't mean that they were presenting well. These families would come in terrified of the identified. The patient would be relaying like, and my dad did this and my mom did this and my siblings did this. And they would re re kind of report back like that never happened. On that date when she said I shoved her into her room and slammed the door and locked it, what I did was I said, go to your room, sit down, and I closed the door. But the individual's perception of it was something that was wildly, wildly different. So that's my very long-winded way of saying that we're finding out that it's not a personality disorder. You can't throw an antidepressant at it. You can't throw... Um, a mood stabilizer or an antipsychotic medication because it's not that mechanic within the chemical limbic and brain structure system. But with, you know, just the way things are advancing and, you know, Dr. Shadow, you mentioned this, it's hard to study some of this because, you know, it's 1% and they're known for lying, right? I mean, if you talk about psychopaths, but as you guys look forward and as science is making leaps, you know, medicine's making leaps, do you see, you know, on that three-legged stool, as you mentioned, those two biological markers, is there anything that you see on the horizon that might speak to some of that and help address some of that? In the biological sense, I think the, I mean, when we talk about brain structure, brain mapping and genetics, I mean, those are things that are just skyrocketing in terms of technology, but also research and what we're understanding However, I think the brain is going to be the trickier one. You know, we just, there's so much unknown and we have to make sure that we do a good job at back to the basics, right? Of what psychologists and psychiatrists are doing as far as appropriately identifying these individuals and then being able to get opportunities to study them in lab settings to be able to continue this research. 
I wish that was something that I could speak more eloquently about. But when you're a practitioner and you're a clinician, you're taking what the very, very smart neuroscientists are doing and weaving it into your practice as much as you can. And that's something that Scott and I, as practitioners and clinicians still in the field, know that we have to do. We have to keep up on what the research is out there. And there are people that dedicate their entire lives for just doing that. And they never see a patient in a clinical setting in their life, right? They hook up a bunch of wires to their brain <laughs> and say, thank you very much after they get out of there. And so it's like our two worlds have to constantly talk to each other. Um, so it would probably be um, better to speak to someone who does that to get a true answer of where it's going. I'm just happy that they're doing the work that they're doing and that I can incorporate it into the work that I do. There's some really great research right now in ADHD, you know, understanding that ADHD is way more complex um, than we ever imagined. And it might have to do, you know, with some kids, these behaviors might actually be childhood sleep apnea. Um, so, you know, we, so we have to differentiate, like, is it brain structure that was there for some sort of biological imperative that developed, you know, 50,000 years ago, who knows, but what we found out through the advent of video games is that you can actually rewire the brain with certain, you know, screen technologies. We do it. We actually do it for children with auditory processing issues, you know, kids that, they have to be able to have a combination of sight and sound in order to be able to complete a task. And what we used to do, unfortunately, 30, 40 years ago, was we would just say, oh, well, that kid's developmentally disabled, put them in special ed. When all they needed to do was play a video game every morning for a half an hour for two years, and basically you rewired the brain. So we've been, you know, there is movement that way which I find fascinating. Like I wish somebody would, I wish someone would do um, an experiment, you know, ethically and legally about antisocial personality disorder with inmates, give them access to a specially designed video game that the only way you can get ahead in the game is like by cooperation and, you know, empathy uh, or yeah, pro-social activities. But somebody else would, I would probably present that to somebody else who's, you know, one of my peers and they'd go, or are you going to teach them to be more manipulative by giving them that game? It is a tough one, you know, because you hear, and again, I don't mean to sound so dumb on some of this. I know just enough, but you know, there's always like that prefrontal, like is not connecting oftentimes with psychopaths. Right. And you just wonder like, what is the research to, how do you liven that part up? Mm -hmm. Is it possible you know, rewiring. And I know there's a lot of science and they're hard to study, but man, they, they start a lot of wars. <laughs> they, they, they do a lot of crazy stuff. You know, if we talk about it in the, in the, in the, the bigger, the macro, you know, we're living in an incredibly stressful world, right? Stress is a trigger for so many emotional and mental health issues. And we just, I mean, you know, I'm from the South. We just keep turning up the heat on that frog. You know, you just boil a frog real slow and suddenly the water is boiling. So it does, that does account for why we have more incidences of uh, crime and antisocial activities in large urban areas where people are struggling to pay bills. They're struggling to have any kind of quality of life. 
you know, that is a crucible for antisocial behaviors and may not mean the person's antisocial themselves, but those behaviors are required for them to survive. And while we live in a world that continues to be more stimulating all the time, we've got a 24 hour news cycle, we've got our screens, we've just got all this stimuli. That's a lot of information barraging our prefrontal cortex. What have I missed, though? Because some of it, I don't know what to ask. The only thing we didn't touch on was double lives, but that's like a whole other topic. So can you just spend a minute on that just for me? I think that it's something that that warrants. <laughs> like, I'm just going to nose my way into another one of your episodes is what I'm going to do. Let's do it. No, but I, I actually think that it warrants another conversation because double lives the concept of this is is a spectrum. You know, people live various types of double lives. And in order to do that, you have to lie. But in order, you know, how do you maintain that? How do you juggle these multiple narratives within your life? And then this is something that we see in people, people like Scott Peterson, you know, these people that commit some of these most horrific crimes against spouses or intimate partners that have double lives that they were keeping completely separate you know, telling, just kind of creating a completely different persona. And I, it's really fascinating about why people do that because it gives them, maybe they don't feel so much control in this area of real life. So they're creating another life where they think that they have autonomy and they're controlling the narrative. And that I think is a big drive in cases like this, this one, allegedly. So yeah, let's revisit that because that is like, you know, how do you live a life where you're like, oh, let's see next week the wife's out of town. I mean, like, yeah, I've probably done more ice cream when the wife's out of town than I should. Right. You know, I live that double life. But then, but like, think about it. Think about it, all the skills that it takes to address that. Like you're going to go to the grocery store and buy the same two pints of Bluebell and hide it in the same part of the freezer so that she doesn't know that you scarf the other one down, right? That takes... Yeah. The double scoop life is what Chris has been living. <laughs> we all got him, guys. I know. Thanks for the time. This has been fascinating. And again, I really mean, I'm not blowing smoke. I'm so glad you guys are out there doing this work because... You know, you just you just know, like, people need a chance to go back at it and having people that care and are doing assessments and trying to protect us and protect them. I'm glad you're there. I really mean it. Thank, Thank you. you. We find ourselves in a very lucky, fortunate position to be able to do the work that we do and help the clients that we work with. Forensic psychology is wonderful in that it's afforded us a lot of different opportunities to do different things. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Dr. Shiloh and Dr. Scott from LA Not So Confidential. If you haven't listened to their podcast, please take a minute to follow them and download a couple episodes. As you heard, they're incredibly conscientious and super smart people who do the kind of work that most of us can't conceive of doing. For more information, check us out on all social platforms. Our handle is Atlas Podcast, and we'll be posting more info about this episode and others. Last, if you haven't already, we'd be grateful if you could rate and review the podcast so that we can get the case and the show out to those who don't know about it yet. It really helps. Thanks so much. This has been a Mopac Audio production. I am your host, Chris Moss. Our senior producer is Shannon McGarvey. Our executive producers are Jonathan Beal and Jonathan Nowazarden, and music by Blake Maples.
The views, speculation, conjecture, and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers, guests, and the hosts. They do not reflect or represent the policy or views held by Mopac Audio LLC or any broadcaster of this podcast. Any and all suspects discussed on this podcast are considered innocent until guilt is established in a court of law and any allegations, speculation, opinion, or conjecture about any suspect is subject to such presumption of innocence.